Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Before we get started with this episode, we wanted to make sure that you've heard about the Ag Emerge Summer Summit. You're invited to join us August 4th and 5th for a two-day field event where you'll experience soil health and regenerative agriculture in action on the Bottens Family Farm in Cambridge, Illinois. In addition to learning from Monty, you'll hear from experts in their field, including Dr. Joel Groover and Megan Filbert, along with some thought-provoking and motivational stories shared by farmer and mentor Cameron Mills and retired mixed martial artist and UFC Hall of Famer Pat Militich. We'll cover a lot of ground, from the basics of cover cropping to the wild side of livestock integration. So come, enjoy a chance to think outside the box and get your questions answered as we share years of experience in a full transparency farm tour. Oh, and we won't let you go hungry. All meals during the event are included with registration, and we'll also keep you entertained as you'll have a unique opportunity to spend a fun evening in the pasture with dinner and live music at the fourth annual Concert with the Cows. This is an event you won't want to miss. For more information and to get registered, head on over to our website at www.asn.farm. And now, on to our show. Thanks for joining us. Today we welcome Alan Lewis. Alan is the Vice President of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for Natural Grocers. Natural Grocers is a Colorado-based health food chain founded in 1955 with over 170 stores in 20 states. Allen navigates governmental affairs and food and agriculture policy, and at the federal, state, and local level, Allen engages on food, agriculture, nutrition, rural economic development, food safety, and trade and health issues. Allen shares with us today how his personal family story plays deeply into why he is so passionate about the work he's doing. Allen talks with Monty about how Natural Grocers is a part of a broad coalition of thousands of independent food retailers who are trying to change the food system by changing the supply chain. Join us as we explore this important topic. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm excited to have Alan Lewis join us today. Alan is with uh, Natural Grocers. Some of you may have heard of it, may not. It's a grocery store that my wife and I shop at in Davenport, Iowa. So we're excited to uh, support uh, their mission and what they're all about. But Alan, I'd just like for you to uh, take a little time and tell us your story, uh, your background, and and what brings you to the, the food space. Well, thanks so much, and it's really great to be here. Um, no one asks me that question very often, like, wh- why do I care about this, and why do I spend, oh, 14 hours a day haranguing people on these issues? Um, so I've had to actually think about it, and, and, and really, my grandparents were hoggers for John Morrell in Ottumwa, Iowa, and then uh, granddad worked their transportation system for about 25 years, and my grandmother was actually in the processing plant uh, uh, cutting up hogs, and I'll tell you what, if there's one thing she wouldn't eat, it was uh, bologna and hot dogs, 
that was always a joke at the at the picnic. Um, but it's also a very serious story because a place like Atumwa, Iowa, when I was a kid, had 42,000 people. It was a vibrant community with schools and um, healthy families. Everyone went to, to uh, get an education. Uh, parades that lasted an hour that, that brought the whole county and the region together. And between uh, John Morrell and Hormel and IBP, Iowa Beef Products, and Cargill, uh, they uh, broke the union, cut wages by half, imported immigrant workers who they didn't support, um, and uh, they took advantage of every tax loophole they could, the corporations, and decimated how it operated the functioning municipality. Now, I saw this happening when I was 10, and now I'm 60, and that 50 years Samoa has lost all but 18,000 of its original uh, family residents, and a good number of the remaining people are immigrants who are largely just abused and, and discarded by the current operator of those plants. That is a big issue for all of America, for politics, for understanding rural economies, for understanding opportunity and access to markets. So my dad was the last generation of my family that grew up on a farm. And he remained a farmer all his life, despite being a preacher and a civil rights attorney and living in Denver for a good 40 years when he uh, raised us kids. But he always kept the Model T from his farm, filled with a bunch of farm implements that had no use. Um, in, in a city backyard, but that's just who, she wa who he was. So my idea of a vacation was let's drive to Kansas and uh, <clears throat> see the Lewis graves in Quinter or head up to Athens or Bird City or St. Francis and uh, get a burger or something because we love those open vistas. And then on weekends, um, Instead of going to the amusement park, we'd go to the Seaver Chazes farm worker marks, uh, marches in Denver down on South Santa Fe at the truck farms. So I got a good education from my grandparents about just how difficult the agricultural uh, corporate environment was. They uh, lost their pensions. They lost their health care that they promised and paid into for 50 years. They ended up uh, relatively poor, living in an apartment in Topeka, uh, quite bitter for the last 20 years of their life. Uh, this is not an unusual story, right? This is decay of rural America. So that's the long answer to why I care, because they've seen the damage uh, that is done, and I get outraged that the corporations that caused that damage continue to do it and dress it up as sustainable and responsible and uh, act like they're good corporate citizens. I'm going to take a pause there, see if anything <laughs> touched the nerve for you. Well, I think that's um, that really explains when you have a, a personal family story behind uh, what, what you're involved with, that, that certainly uh, inspires you and gives you the motivation to, to go out there and try and make that change. And oftentimes I think we blame uh, NAFTA and the loss of manufacturing jobs in China 
and the loss of manufacturing jobs for affecting, you know, small town manufacturing and our population base in small rural America. And that seems to be kind of the easy button to push. But I really think if you look at the commoditization, centralization of agricultural industry, you know, today uh, I farm 2,500 acres. And then uh, 50 years ago, right, that would have supported probably seven farmers. So, right. uh, you know, the margins are tighter and tighter. You have to farm more and more acres in order to, you know, make it up on volume, right? That's the whole <laughs> American way of doing stuff. And so we're, we're producing a product that's, that's less and less identifiable. And, and that's just kind of the, the accepted way of the world. And I think the side effect is what you hit on there, just with the population you're talking about of Ottumwa and what has happened in every small town in America has gone away because the more, you, you know, more that one farmer farms to, to make a living for his family, well, then the less that's needed of those support services. So it, it's, uh, uh, the problems create right. more problem. So it's, uh, it's interesting uh, what your family's been through. My, my uncle was a meat cutter at the Oscar Meyer plant in Beardstown, Illinois, um, on hogs and just ruined his wrists. And, uh, and those kinds of, oh things. yeah, you don't, you don't, la you don't last long. No, no. But in the job I have, I am super privileged to be able to literally drive across the country, put my boots in the dirt, talk to farmers, uh, especially enjoy sitting in diners, uh, talking to farmers about all of the barriers to success that they experience. And that's access to land, access to credit. Most importantly, kind of for our conversation today, is just access to markets. <clears throat> if we're selling all of this food, $600 billion to a trillion dollars worth of food every year in this country, why are farmers going out of business? And why is land fallow and they're not growing food? Uh, where's the disconnect? And this goes back to the very early sounding uh, rules in, in, in laws of our country and how the big landowners captured tens, if not hundreds of thousands of acres of land and then leased it out to tenant farmers. And then the railroads and the, and the wholesalers decided they were gonna control access to seeds and cheese and wire and fence and nails and tools. And they were gonna sell those at extraordinarily high prices to the farmers, and they were also the buyers of the commodities and they took the price on the commodity. So really, uh, the idealized family farm, the yeoman farmer in the United States has been uh, preyed on every which way from the first days of our country. Currently that, you know, there are so few left. Because like you're saying, if you're not really big right now and you're not plugged into the agricultural commodity uh, system, if you're not growing ethanol corn, <clears throat> seed corn, uh, soy for, for food processing, um, or, or big GMO cotton, then you are really um, selling some vegetables on the farm stand to the neighbors driving by. The other thing, of course, is the, the cattle industry, where cattlemen now, say ranching families, only get barely enough for their live cattle 
to pay for the cost of raising them um, and get that dollar a pound uh, with, uh, that the ranchers get paid turns into $6 a pound ground beef at Costco this week. It's not particularly good ground beef or $30, $40 a pound uh, specialty muscle cuts. There's a huge disconnect there, again, where the middle, the feedlot processor, distributor, retailer is taking all of the value out and leaving not even crumbs for, uh, for the rural communities, the farmers, the producers uh, that we believe our country uh, was founded on and support. Well, I, I, I love that because the thing that I listened to your TEDx talk in Boulder. Um, and, um, it was shared across some platforms in regenerative ag circles. And I listened to it and I got the, the biggest kick out of it because what's really driving this, you know, um, Ross Perot giant sucking sound, if you will, all, all that money leaving the farm is this, is this middle blob and it's being driven by this, uh, this group that you termed the Fiberati. And I just, absolutely, yeah. I just absolutely love that. And it's that combination of, of, of market, explain this, what, what that's about. And I just, I, I love the terminology and it kind of shines a light on the, on, on what's going on in the food system. Well, I guess there's an old, uh, term called the Illuminati. And then there's a dis- dismissive term for academics called the literati. And I just, who are telling lies for a living and industries that are built on those lies being believed that those people are the Fiberati. And you can sit down and have coffee with a woman in Iowa City who runs the Global Farmer Network, which is funded by Syngenta. And she is a nice, kind, honest woman. But her job is to tell lies people feel good about Syngenta and, the, and their basic desire to control the, the global food supply. So the Fiberati is very nefarious because the people who do it are uh, well-paid and intelligent and sincere. They're well-paid and intelligent and sincere, but in the, in the end analysis, they are trying to underpin or hold up or support a system that is probably hurting them personally and their family. So that's the Fiberati. And the Fiberati have one particular thing, which I'm sure uh, I, if you see that video, you'll see the audience kind of taking a breath and they're just aghast because I point to them and I say, all of you are the problem. You're the problem because you're the elite disconnected from agriculture who are demanding better food. And the Fiberati says that those are the people that are the problem because in fact, of course, they are the ones driving change, driving the, the, the the, the movement to pay farmers to produce better food, to pay the right through full price for food, so that we can start bringing agriculture and food production back to our cities and counties and states, as opposed to offloading it or creating everything from free commodity grains. Yeah, and you know they're trying to um, the system's trying to self-support what they're doing, and and as far as what we're really, really good at is making cheap food or cheap calories. I mean, we are, we are excellent at doing that, 
But, um, you know, when, like you said, when you shop for a better product that has maybe certain production characteristics for animal welfare or animal diet or certain production characteristics as in no synthetic herbicides, organic, those kind of things, then we're called food elites, right? That's what you're saying is that we're, we're elite. Right. But uh, reality is, is that's, that's a choice that, that we can make. And people are making that choice to help change the system. And um, the sad part is, is that our tax dollars, your and my tax dollars, or everyone out there, goes to support the conventional industry. So really, you're, you're paying it almost three times, right? Maybe twice as much for the product that's raised in the way that, that you support, plus you're paying for it again to support the conventional production practice. How, how does that change? Well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll tell you how we at Natural Grocers are changing it. And this is a global collaboration. So I'm not taking credit for any of it, but I'll take credit for explaining it. A place like Natural Grocers, we're, we're a part of a broad coalition of thousands of independent food retailers who are actually trying to change the food system by changing the supply chain. So you start with science and you say, well, what foods and what production methods are really viable and sustainable and helpful? That's for soil, biodiversity, climate, but especially for urban, uh, sorry, for, for rural economic vitality, but neighborhood economic vitality for that matter. Because notice I went from science to ethics to science to ethics and back again. So you look for production methods and food supply chains that for 360 degrees support the values that uh, you're espousing or that matter to your customers and, and companies yourself. But then just knowing what you want doesn't mean you can just press the easy button and go find it. So if you want grass-fed beef from family farms that are raised solely on soil and the soil is monitored for improvements, for water retention, for organic matter, um, and you're going to have to pay more for that and really for ground beef, right now you're talking about $8 a pound for grass-fed ground beef. Well, that's a lot of money. But you go back to your customers and you say, look, we've identified this method, this food that's nutritious and helpful to communities and soil and main treatment for animals. It's going to cost you this much, but you're paying for the food itself. You're paying for improved soil, for flood mitigation, for drought mitigation. You're paying those kids so they can go to school. They, those families can have medical care and those farms can hire people from within their communities and those communities may, uh, remain intact and functioning and healthy and vibrant and optimistic, unlike Atamwa. So now what we did is we found the products that we wanted to sell and we worked with a, uh, a new brand, Matt Mayer up at Thousand Hills in central Minnesota. And he put together 80 ranches that submitted to oversight for all of those attributes there. And then we came back and we presented that to our customers. This is what we're going to sell. And we're only selling that. If you need $1.99 cheap meat from JBS, you know where to go. It'll be at the freezer in the dollar store. If you want to support the world and families in the country and heal our political system, <laughs> here's where to come. 
the second part of that, of course, is now you now you have the science and the ethics, you have a supply chain, you have educated customers, um, but you still have the price problem, and you get to get into deep nutrition and deep nutrition education because a pound of ground beef, if it's high quality, it is very satisfying, and you can have a quarter pound per person at a meal and be over protein, right? So that $8 really is $4 because you're going to divvy that up among your family members and your meals, and you're not going to eat it every night. Now your customers are spending the same amount of money getting better quality uh, food, having a better diet, and circling around and supporting all of the, the, the science and values that we're looking at. Now, the problem with educated, informed, empowered customers they're going to start asking questions. They're going to demand more. And so we cycle that around and we say, okay, we've made it to Thousand Hills grass-fed beef, and we've got a really robust supply chain. We've got good physical supplies that, that showed their endurance and reliability throughout the pandemic. Um, how can we do better? And that's where the cycle starts again. How can we improve what Thousand Hills is doing? Uh, reinforce our ethical point of view, educate our customers, improve the nutrition and diet, and then keep going. That's how we have changed the system for where we source our meat. That has been a real thorn in the side for the big retailers and big packing houses who talk about small family farms and they show their ranches across the world being sustainable but they have a really hard time when I say, show me your feedlots, show me your GMO corn and soy, show me your antibiotics, show me your inflammation records, show me your manure lagoons, show me your test for antibiotic resistance um, in those manure lagoons. That's how we've changed the system by setting up something that's better, demonstrably, visibly better than the charade that has been uh, wasted on America for the last 70 years. So rather than taking a product that exists and uh, trying to ascribe values to it of healthy and wholesome and sustainable, which is what the Fiberati are doing today, uh, your, your approach has been, here's the standard we want to meet. Okay. Now, how do we develop that supply chain? So now on the, on the backside, I'm very familiar with this. So uh, Todd Churchill is, is a neighbor. He's the original founder of Thousand Hills, and it's been transitioned, like you said, to Mr. Mayor. And uh, we were growing um, a group of cattle for Thousand Hills. So we knew what the, you have to be an American Grass-Fed Association member. They come and do soil tests ahead of time afterwards, see if you're making progress on carbon. This is all legit. I mean, it's, you sign affidavits on no antibiotics and and all these kind of things. So it is a very robust program. And like you said, you, you got a good supply chain partner there with uh, Lawrence and uh, the other folks in Vermont. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's the real deal. So how do you make that better? I mean, that you've, you've got a, you've got a, a great gold standard. And if I heard you right, you're saying, Hey, we're looking to make, take it to the next step. What are customers, these educated customers, what do they want next? Well, let's be clear, they, they want efficiency, so that comes down a dollar per pound, which is what Thousand Nails is working on. How do you 
improve that standard, but also capture better economies of scale. Mm-hmm. Right now, the problem is the ranchers are in Minnesota. They do uh, grazing and grass feeding down in Oklahoma. I think they go up mm-hmm. to Omaha to be slaughtered. The carcasses go back to Cannon Falls to be processed and packaged. And then they go out to our distribution center. There's a lot of inefficiencies in there. Mm-hmm. However, uh, you know, COVID kind of freezed everything. <laughs> Let's see if our system works and keep it working. Um, I don't, so I don't have the answer to that question yet. Uh, but obviously, the, the, the key for the rancher is, or the farmer, the producer in general is, they would rather use safer, more sustainable production methods. But the risk of growing something expensive that they can't sell, that's intolerable. So just maintaining this consumer demand for what they are growing and then broadening the number of head of cattle that they're putting through the system because we have more customers and the hangers on around us that are also buying Thousand Hills are, are generating more demand. That's an in, that's an in, uh, an embedded benefit, which is we're not stuck at X number of thousand ranches or head of cattle. We're actually improving more soil, improving more water, improving improving more lives. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to take a breath and pause there and uh, pat ourselves on the back tentatively. But the real issue is still that. Most farmers don't have that choice. There is no farmer hills, a thousand hills in most places they can call up and say, I've got premium, beautiful grass-fed beef. It's super regenerative. Will you buy it? No one, no one will buy it. Um, so you can't ask them to grow it to generate those markets. If you remember in my TED Talk, that's one of the first things I said. I wagged my finger at the audience and I said, here's a picture of a dairy that you probably don't like. This is this farmer's only choice. He has been told, if you don't make milk this way, we won't buy it. So now we've shifted the paradigm and said, well, why not? If I grow natural grocers and those independent natural, natural food stores are saying they'll buy it. So, what do you, so, so which is it? Breaking down that... Uh, kind of uh, feeling that there aren't options, I think that's one of our biggest success. Everyone can hold it up and say, yeah, what you're saying is not true. You can do this right, still make money, and still support the entire value chain and supply chain. And that was really what my next question was going to be about, is how do we get farmers to make this change? You know, So you're providing that opportunity to them. It's just a matter of connecting with more and, and plus, you know, one of the things that you're doing, and, and this is, I'm sure it's in other parts of your business too, other than just the grass fed beef, but you know, you are, you're making commitments and forecasts into the future to where the farmer can supply that because it's when you raise an animal in the grass fed protocol, right? It has to go for grass fed premium. Otherwise, if it has to compete against the conventional, it, it's, it's a backward situation. So, you know, that's, that's one thing right. that you're doing, I think. But what are other things that, that you see that um, uh, how you're helping farmers change the way that they, they farm? Well, 
as usual, you're asking the right question, but let's get into the real, the, the places where we really have a hard time, because I think that'll be the most interesting thing to talk about. We have, for instance, a store in Durango, and nearby is Montrose and Farmington, New Mexico. Durango's in Colorado, Montrose, um, somewhat Glenwood Springs, Pueblo, Salida. They're all part of this southwestern rural uh, Colorado area. Um, but Durango in particular can grow a tremendous amount of organic beans, organic vegetables, melons, uh, uh, heritage corn, things like that. It's almost impossible for us to buy from them. And because we can't buy from them, they're not really becoming certified organic. And what's happened is throughout the country, but in Colorado and in the southwestern Colorado, some wiseacre decided that we didn't need dehydration, we didn't need canneries, we didn't need aggregators who would pick this up, we didn't need bean cleaners, we didn't need silos, we didn't need uh, grain elevators. And so you can, we have so much potential to grow food within our regional food shed, but the steps to get from seed, dirt, to, uh, to picked produce on a farm and into a retail store or in the Adams State College uh, uh, commissary to, the, to their cafeteria, there's nothing there. You, you, you can't do it. And if you can't do it because the infrastructure is missing, the logistics are missing, the trucks, the refrigeration, uh, the food safety experts, the storage, all of that is missing and it becomes astronomically expensive to do it because you're just pushing through with hard manual ad hoc labor and, and, and makeshift everything. So our focus there, and this is incredible, I'm talking about it as if we, we feel we'll be successful, but our focus there is to organize, help organize the farmers offer incentives to get them to do the organic certification, get some USDA money in there to recreate this infrastructure that's torn out um, so that when there's a, a bumper harvest of Belita beans down there, those Belita beans can all be aggregated into tens of thousands of pounds. And then we could potentially buy them, package them, put it in our bulk, uh, our bulk food system um, or have them incorporated in, into the women's bean project, or they can go to the commissary and the cafeteria, the prison, the hospitals, or whatever. Right now, you can grow it and you're going to eat it because that's the only that's the only uh, place where it should be consumed. So this, let me just wrap this up by the fact that the idea that we can't that there is a food shortage, or that there's a shortage of local food or shortage of organic food, is all based on the broken logistics and the logistics were broken intentionally by the big guys. They came in, they bought the co-ops, they bought the canneries, they bought the, the, uh, the, the, the granaries, the elevators, and they destroyed them. They destroyed them because they wanted big regional efficient systems that they could own and be the only player uh, that controls the, the, that part of the economy. And they were very successful. Yeah, there's uh there's always more to the story 
We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. As the saying goes, you know, right. it's, um, you know, as farmers, uh, oftentimes, uh, we're, you know, the 14 cents of every dollar comes to the farmer and everything else has to be in between for processing and distribution. You know, I understand that, you know, in our direct marketing business, it is amazing the costs associated with logistics and overhead and, and, and people to to get it to the customer's doorstep. It, it is a truly amazing thing. But like you said, in, in this search for the economics of scale, um, let's say that they weren't doing it, you know, maliciously, but, you know, in the search of economics of scale, some of those farming areas are, are so kind of small and unique that they probably went for beans in North Dakota, where there's hundreds of thousands of acres available in a rain-fed environment and such. But, you know, what happens then is those ideal places are given up for the, you know, broad acre, okay places. And uh, so that's interesting how you're really having to backfill the processing capacity and everything so that you can get the product that you want to sell. So there's plenty, there's not a lack of, um, there's not a lack of customers that want good food. And and there's probably not a lack of, of channels to sell it. It's the, the in-between is that is that what you're saying? A lot of there's not a lack of there's not a lack of knowledge, motivation, or or uh, or gumption either. Uh, you know, I mentioned Atkins and uh, Atwood Bird City in St. Francis, up in far northwestern Kansas. Well, that's where the High Plains Food High Plains Food Co-op is, and Calicrate Meats, mm-hmm. and they've decided to rebuild their economy outside of the uh, big agricultural economy. So. They harvest uh, chickens. They have vegetable farms up there. Uh, Mike Calicrete has a slaughterhouse up there. He's got a, a, a hybrid regenerative feedlot with a Wagyu mixed breed. Mm-hmm. And then all of that food is trucked down to Denver and Colorado Springs for value-added processing, um, including a big regenerative pastured egg farm and uh, in Colorado Springs that meat can be processed. And, uh, and then they're creating the resale connection through a set of uh, regional food sheds retail stores and also uh, connections to prisons and, and hospitals. And then, of course, probably 70% of it is direct to consumer sales. So the consumers can step up and say, I want to participate in our regional food shed. I want to support these farmers who are only two hours away. Uh, Oh, it's a long, flat, beautiful drive, but it's not far to Atwood and St. Francis and Bird City. And that food comes in here, and then we are circumventing the imports from Peru or the processing in China um, or, the, or, the, or the beef from Brazil. So things can happen, but boy, does the system push back. They want to make that so difficult because ultimately it threatens their model. And it really boils down to uh, effort, creativity, and, and capital, you know, do, is, is there the capital right. and the, the, the stomach to fight the system? And, 
it's interesting. So it's not that it can't be done. It's just a matter of, are we willing to take that step and, and go out there, maybe work right. with other farmers in that system? What Mike's done there is, is absolutely amazing. And he's gone through many iterations to make that happen. Yeah. He started his mobile. And how many process. times have they tried to put him out of business? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I think Mike anymore has to spend more time in uh, Washington than he does in Colorado Springs. So, but uh, anyway, that that's uh, that's for another another podcast. But it it's uh, it's it's interesting, and these these little places are popping up. So, what you know, a lot of people that listen to our podcast are also ag tech entrepreneurs. That's part of the Ag Emerge uh, platform as we're trying to bring in uh, ag tech startups to focus their ideas on assisting re- the regenerative ag thing instead of just making a couple more bushels or a couple more dollars per acre on or you know, vaccinations in the feed for hogs in a confinement. Okay. How do we take the, your uh, ideas and, and efforts and turn that and focus on regenerative farming? What are some of the technologies right now that you see in this uh, food distribution uh, and, and farm, essentially farm to table um, concept that, that is in desperate need for, for technology innovation? Well, I'm going to push back a little and say uh, it's it, 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 yeah, it's complicated. You vegetables in my front yard, like I do, and I sit on uh, on each plant over the summer and uh, have a return of uh, oh, ten cents per hour on my labor. <laughs> in order to get a a group of small uh, working farms actually growing food with integrative livestock, uh, some grain, some vegetables, seasonality, early, late season, hoop houses for the winter. Um, The number one thing they need is capital to get it set up and people to promise to buy it. Um, I I love all of the ag tech in terms of managing farms, in terms of measuring environmental outcomes, in terms of keeping track of animal welfare. Um, I, I find the drones to be, uh, you know, a fascinating way once or twice a year to, to capture that snapshot or that video of, of your whole operation. It's especially valuable then when somebody steps in and says, Marcus McCauley, you took over land that the county allowed to be destroyed by its last tenant. tenant and over the last five years, you have demonstrated the creation of one quarter inch of topsoil, this much water retention to, to avoid flooding and drought, and we're going to pay you for that service instead of renting you really, you know, desecrated land, we're going to pay you for the service of restoring it because it's really hard for him to make money on dead land, but the county allowed it to be killed, and so we should be paying him, but the technology nexus is that the technology can prove it. And and that the the other point over and over we see farm to market apps where consumers or restaurants chefs institutions can find out what's available today. Um, that's complicated because what's available may be called uh, ten cases of beets, and when it shows up, it's ten cases of little bitty beets with great big leaves on them, right? So, so uh, that developing that robust supply chain, 
what we need there is someone to guarantee that unsold product gets purchased and used because a farm's not going to survive growing the product hoping that someone presses the buy button uh, and will pay for it to be appropriately dropped off or delivered or or, or whatever. So it's a whole bunch of micro technologies that are making life a little bit easier, but we're uh, we're still facing forty billion dollars of investment uh, tax for money by Secretary Vilsack and all the wrong things, and then he throws crumbs to the thousand counties in the United States to tell them to fix all the wrong things that he's done with one hand with a little bit of money with the other hand. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's another story, but, uh, what about, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, what about like on identity preservation? Do you think in the future, um, consumers are going on to know rather than let's just back to the thousand Hills, cause we've mentioned it, they want to know it's a thousand Hills and it went through that process or they want to go to, or do they want to know that that animal spent time at Emory and, uh, Birdwell and Deb Clark's ranch? And that's where it, it came from. Are they going to want to know that it, it came from, you know, a, a ranch in Minnesota? Are they going to, um, you know, more and more identity, identity preservation? Where do you, where do you see um, the IP going in, in the food chain? Does that matter? Or will, will the brand always trump? Or will truth, uh, because we have technology able to tell us exactly what that is, will that enter more and more? Um, I, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate on that. I, I don't like the identity preservation systems or the, the RFID tags, um, all under the guise of food safety or bioterrorism uh, concerns, because the cost of doing those is so high that only the big players can do it. The benefits only accrue to the big players. The people who really care about that might be Kroger, Costco, Walmart, Sam's Club, Safely Albertsons, right? The, the, the people that control 60, 80% of the, of the food retail. And they will make hay with it, but it doesn't really mean that there's change being created by that, whether it's safety or visibility or, or sustainability or whatever. And it certainly doesn't create opportunity. It doesn't address the problem of high quality beef coming off a regenerative ranch at extreme amount of effort and being put on the same shelf with a greenwashed piece of meat that Walmart's selling and you really can't tell the difference. So uh, So if that's where identity preservation leads to massive confusion and greenwashing, then, then, then what's the point? So you're saying that only works when the person knows that local rancher and knows that local brand and he's determined to find it and buy it. That's where it could make a difference. So other than that direct um, relationship, you're saying that IP lends itself to more Fibberati fodder. That would, that would be the term. Yeah, it, that's, <laughs> that's what it is. It's, <laughs> it's exactly by and for the Fibberati so they can continue all of their practices and capture all of that money in the middle for themselves. What about nutrient density? And, and there's, there's some apps that are, they're worth looking at where your phone can take a picture of a piece of lettuce and tell you what the nutrient and the secondary components are in it. 
Um, what's your thoughts on that? Do you think there's some legs on that? Well, I, I like the idea. Your picture, Natural Grocers is in the nutrition business. You know, we're a nutrition education company. We sell carrots and crackers to pay millions of dollars every year to get our customers up to speed on what they should be eating for their particular circumstances. Um, so will we be able to say that a carrot grown with pesticides and artificial fertilizers in a big field in northern Colorado is substandard compared to the organic carrot out of my garden. I, we're going, and people might choose one over the other, but in the grand scheme of American nutrition, it's not particularly relevant because we're so severely malnourished as a country. I'm just putting that caution in there. These are good technologies, and I think uh, Dan Kittredge and some others are getting close to something that's really usable, but it won't affect our underlying problem with our nutritional status. So uh, all of our food is less nutritious now. It's, it's been pulled out of the dirt for, for weeks before we eat it. The, the dirt's not particularly healthy. Uh, it's not a diverse diet. We only eat very few things. I think a couple hundred things is all, all the the variety that we eat. So those apps and that toxicology is not yet changing that underlying problem, but I, I still like them quite a bit. And let me take that to the next step because we're working on some deep research, cutting edge technology research, looking at not just the known nutrients that uh, the USDA typically accounts for to food, but we're looking for all the entourage ingredients and residues that end up in a processed food. That could be glyphosate, AMPA, atrazine, any number of uh, uh, pesticides or preservatives or emulsifiers. And in particular, when we get to synthetic protein, the synthetic protein that's spit out by a gene-edited pathogen in a, in a big fermentation vat, they don't know what's being produced. Those are novel metabolites and novel substances. So we don't even have reference tables to see their molecular weight and understand what they are, let alone determine if they're healthy or nutritious for the person eating that finished food. So I think you're going to see that simple nutrition detection, nutrient density detection technology serve a brand new novel of purpose that's especially important to food safety and environmental integrity. That, that's an interesting point I hadn't thought of before. So you're talking in, in the case of when we're hey, proteins, we're not talking like the, the current impossible burger, beyond burger that are essentially, you know, synthesized plant proteins. You're talking about where we make uh, essentially genetically modified uh, single cell organisms that are going to be exuding uh, amino acids or proteins that we then synthesize together in a, in a lab meat type of uh, arrangement, correct? Right. And, yeah, and we yeah, really don't know what thousand, <laughs> There's a thousand different ways to do this because each, each company wants a protectable, patentable way to do it. But it is Impossible Burger, which has multiple patents that describe gene editing pathogens in order to create dyes, colors, flavors, and aromas to affect that highly processed soy patty uh, to, to make it look, cook, 
smell and taste like, like beef, but they have no idea what the entourage contaminants are that are flowing out of those systems. They spin it out in centrifuges and they even admit they only get mm, 85 to 90% of, uh, of the good stuff out, what they call good stuff, and all sorts of other stuff flows through into the final product. So we're gonna see nutrient density turn into nutrient identity. And I think that's gonna be a game changer for that whole industry that has to account for the risk of the products that they're making, like nobody else has had to account for them before. I, I am just, I am dumbfounded here right now, thinking through the implications. You know, we, we've done <laughs> right. this uh, consistently in the, in the food industry, and I, I call it the law of unintended consequences. I mean, Roundup was great for killing weeds, you know, and then I, I knew of the pioneering research that Bob Kramer did at Columbia, and shortly thereafter, Don Huber, and now it's a whole trove of people that are research scientists, but they're essentially outside of the U.S. that are, you know, all the peer-reviewed publications on glyphosate, uh, let alone everything else, like you've, you've mentioned other issues we have. Uh, and it's just always these unintended consequences. And, and what are we going to learn out of this? And, and just to, to really sum that up to the listeners, when first commercialized in 1974, the state of the science for toxicology is de minimis. Even 15 years ago, the human gut microbiome didn't exist in the scientific literature. There were 26 studies. This year, it will be 6,000, something like that. So we're talking about the core immune and nutritional organ in your body, your gut microbiome. And we're saying, oh, so we're going to put a patented herbicide antibiotic called glyphosate into the food supply and contaminate our gut microbiome cause permanent dysbiosis beginning at conception and say it's safe. I mean, the unsafeness of that, talk about an unintended consequence, because the science didn't exist. Now it's so don't put herbicide in my gut, thank you, right? So, you know, going back to synthetic meat, I, I need to remind people of this because we're going to see how sustainable and regenerative it is, how it's gonna save the planet. Well, you don't make gold out of lead. Physics has conservation of energy in that. When they're making synthetic protein, it's coming from GMO corn, soy, sugar beets, and sugar cane. It needs all those carbohydrates to feed the microbes, the algae, whatever else, to spit out the metabolites that are then spun out in the centrifuge and, and uh, serve as part of the ingredients in the synthetic meat product. It's the pinnacle of industrial agriculture. It's the pinnacle of chemical use, synthetic fertilizer use, fossil fuel use, concentration of wealth and power, and the, and the continued destruction of rural America. Why these people think it's sustainable? Well, because they're tech entrepreneurs from the San Fernando Valley, and they've never set foot on a farm. So they don't know what sustainability means. So now that I got off my test, I hand the floor back to you. So. <laughs> but, and it's also driven by the margin. I mean, the margin on those products is outstanding because it's uh, a quick, you know, turn. It don't take 30 months, you know, to bring, to make the meat, to bring the market. It, it, it's a quick process and it's a very low cost. So there's been a tremendous amount of capital flow to those kind of uh, processes because 
it's tremendous uh, and it's on trend with what consumers want. So, oh boy, stay tuned on that. Well, they're, they're hoping, okay. they're hoping when they get economies of scale, it'll be more cost, hundreds of dollars a pound. But the investors seem to believe in the um, so we'll we'll see how that plays out. But um, unfortunately, I'm the guy online following all the paper topic, investing their chops constantly. Uh, that you, you you can't use those destructive commodity crop, crops and make any food and tell me it's sustainable. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how that works out for them. <laughs> <laughs> what else do you see here in the in in the future of food? Um, wow, there's a great question I wasn't expecting. What do I see in the future of food? Um, let's look at the crisis right now, where people feel like they're not finding the foods and other products they want on the grocery store, and they're figuring out they're stuck in containers, or there's a drought in India or there's a war in Ukraine, uh, or the, most of the food could be made, but they're missing an enzyme, a lecithin, uh, something to finish the, the actual production of their highly processed favorite food. Um, I, I think we're seeing a return to US production of food and more regional production of food. Uh, and I see, uh, even governments at the county level saying, we don't want to face this crisis in the future. Because it's one thing when people are poor, it's one thing when people are going to house, when they're out of water, uh, drinkable, and they're out of food that they can eat for their next meal, uh, unrest and, and panic set in really quickly. So there's this whole idea that the, that this global government uses crises to enforce a fascist dictatorship on the world. Okay, fine, maybe. But I'll tell you what, a crisis also emboldens uh, state and local office holders and policymakers and crisis managers to get much bigger budgets and really look at just how vulnerable they are. Colorado produces two, maybe 3% of the food that it consumes. I guarantee you every time there's a lizard and the trucks can't come over from Colorado or up from Texas, we have two days of empty shelves. That's how insecure we are. And now when that's a longer term problem, people are saying, okay, enough's enough. We can go two days, but we can't go two weeks. So that's what I see for the future is really an emboldened um, approach to ensuring food sovereignty and food production and um, at, at a much more manageable local level. I agree. It has to happen. Uh, and it, what's old is going to become new again. Right. So, uh, probably like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, your grandparents, uh, that you opened the podcast with, uh, the ways that they, they lived and they, I'm sure they probably had a garden and, and everything was mostly produced locally. Um, uh, there's real strong reasons to go back to that. So, Anything else I should have discussed with you while we had our time here together today? Um, uh, I've, I've got a pet peeve. Can I share it with you? Sure. You bet. The Volstead Act, 1938, allowed agricultural cooperatives to get together 
outside of antitrust and anti-competitive laws and decide how much they're going to make of what product and set the price for the market. And in 1938, that made all the sense in the world. They needed to cooperate in a cooperative to not overproduce or underproduce and to set a reasonable price for the market. And in particular, not allow anyone to sell below cost um, when there was excess production. It's 2022. We don't have cooperatives now. We have groups like the Dairy Farmers of America that are sophisticated, predatory companies who have members that trigger the exclusions in the Volstead Act so that they can operate as a monopoly in their region. But their control over milk production, milk hauling, milk prices and, and, uh, is unbelievably problematic for the country. Um, the lawsuits that have been filed have resulted in $153 million verdicts, not verdicts actually, because the DFA will come in at the last minute and say, you know, we don't want to hand over these million pages of documents to tell you our secrets, so we're just going to write you this check instead. This is a huge problem that consumers don't focus on, and the farm community forgets because there are so few dairies left. 87 significant dairies left in Colorado, all controlled by the DFA. So uh, as a place for people to pay attention to, I'm telling you, that is... Uh, that is a travesty, and it's going to be very hard to reverse that and get smaller family dairies back into the rest of Colorado instead of the three counties in, in the Northeast. Sorry for the rant, but it is a massive problem across the country and uh, way too much power concentrated in those executive boardrooms uh, of those co-ops. Well, and essentially, you're back to a processor problem again, because at the milk shed, you know, it's a transportation issue. Uh, you can only haul so yep. far to, to Greeley and uh, or Fort Morgan, wherever the plant's at there. And you can uh, you, you can only haul from so far away. And because there's only so much arable land and the plant has to be so big for economic scale, you can't have a, uh, you know, uh, uh, oh, shoot, uh, the guys with the mozzarella cheese. Um uh, Laprino. Laprino, thanks. You can't have a Laprino plant yeah. next door like you do in California. You know, there's Laprino, there's Kraft, there's DFA, CDI, all in the same town, right? You know, because there's yeah. a large enough and there's some competitiveness there, but still it's it's a problem. And this is a processor problem, just like you got in Southwest Colorado. It's how do we. So that blob, that blob in the middle includes sugar and safe, some of the biggest processors milk. So DFA, Kroger, Safeway, and one other dairy, plus Aurora Dairy. So there's only five coolers processors in the state. But notice what's happening. You can't get to retail unless DFA is hauling your milk to one of those plants. Mm-hmm. Access to land, access to credit, access to markets, and the retail collusion with the DFA has shut off access to markets. You either play by their game and you're a thousand hit dairy or go home. Mm-hmm. And unbelievably, there's a Colorado Milk Marketing Board uh, run by Kroger Safeway and DFA that has said recently, um, by the way, organic milk, since we don't make it, you all have to charge 20% more 
is you deliver it to individual stores, not to our distribution centers. And uh, the power of that lobby and that board and uh, the co-op are so strong that not the governor, not the attorney general, not the ag commissioner, not the legislature will touch the issue. They're petrified of pushing back on the milk monopoly. This happens across the country, right? The yeah. dairy industry is gasping its last breath. You don't have a thousand cows go home and yet so valuable to local communities, to local nutrition, to local economies. Yet we've allowed, we're allowing this to happen on our watch before our eyes because all we see is the carton on the shelf. Yeah, and a lot of my friends are dairymen and from California trying to find other areas that they can go to because of water situations, land values and such. And, you know, you can't go anywhere unless you have that uh, blessing from the processor because you have to have somebody take your milk. It, it don't, it don't right. store well for a couple months, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, uh, challenge. And I think you're right. I think they are shooting themselves in the foot. And, uh, uh, but anyway. Well, it's good to know that's a pet peeve of yours. And, and in Colorado in particular, <laughs> it is, it is a right. challenge in, in that market. You are exactly right. Cause there's, there's not a lot of options. So, you know, when you do get into Wisconsin's, New York's, uh, California, Idaho's, there's, there's kind of a bigger critical mass to where it's a little less of a problem, but yeah. And some of those other larger States with less processing capacity, it, it's a challenge. So, well, very well, good. Simpler answer. A gentle answer to your question real quickly about the future of the food system is yeah. that we must and will reestablish family dairies uh, in, in rural America and in near cities, as opposed to this massive industrial system that's been created. That's an opportunity and that's a white space because so few exist, but we're going to have to fix food safety rules, access rules, land code rules locally. Um, and again, I think the crisis will motivate that. Um, as long as consumers realize that they need to buy the end product. So thank you for that. No, I, I agree. And, and there's a great example of how egg technology is going to enable that, the robotic milkers. You see, I think that's a way right. for family, right. family dairy to be able to still have a life versus, you know, 24 or seven on, on the milk crew. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it needs to happen. I agree. And we can get to more pastoral type setting for it too. All right, Al, yeah, I really you. appreciate your time today. I hope everyone will take a listen to uh, the pod or the uh, TED talk that he did. We'll certainly have that in the show notes and, um, and reach out to him and, and stay connected because Alan has uh, is at the intersections of government affairs and food trends and, and the retail and what the consumer wants. So he's at a, at a vital crossroads to our industry. So thank you so much for sharing today, Alan. I really appreciate it. Oh, man, thank you. And thank you so much for what you're doing. These podcasts are just invaluable. I watch them all the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. Were you challenged as you thought about food distribution and the commoditization and centralization of the agricultural industry? There are problems that need solving, and we look forward to not only continuing these conversations, but seeking solutions that work. And if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm, and there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.